Alright, it's Paul Larkin here, the fearless green and white writer, or the schemey who should shut up, whatever your perspective is, I don't know, or nor do I care. Okay, it's October the 1st today, it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and today is the general release of From Albert With Love. And this is the day where um, the book ceases to become mine and becomes a property of anybody who buys it. And um, some have likened that to childbirth, but not me, of course. Um, so what I thought I'd do to mark it um, and to kind of wrap up the publicity which is incredibly difficult. And I'll let you into a story. Um, a couple of days ago on Twitter, there was um, a thread going on about my film, Anyone But Celtic, and someone within the thread said that someone should write a book about it. Um, and that, that someone should be Phil McGillibon. Or... Phil White or whatever you call them and I kind of pointed out I did write the book about it like five years ago and um, it's quite strange that because you know when you're an independent writer and you don't deal with publishers or PR companies or distribution networks you have to do it all yourself and you know, I always feel like you walk the tightrope of you know bombarding the same people with information and then having people who have no clue about anything you've done like that person and even though they were aware of the film they didn't know there was a book um attached to it so you know it's it's one of them where it can be that can be sort of demoralizing and and kind of funny at the same time you know a lot of the creative process is fantastic i mean that's the probably that's the best part about any project the worst parts are when you know you can't get the message to people or people didn't have a clue that it even exists and all that kind of thing. So you're, I'm relying on people like you who's listening to this to kind of spread the word because when people, I think, the best PR any writer can get is if somebody reads a book and then says to somebody else, I read this book, it was, it was great. Because when somebody says that to me, the first thing I do is look it up and, you know, etc., um, and that beats any kind of I've never done promoted tweets or Facebook ads or anything like that and it's probably to my detriment you know like some somebody said that to me somebody who's in the creative industry a good friend of mine who's an actor said to me you know you don't stop trying to be the moral paragon all the time like you know and if and I'm not, I didn't, because, you know, I've never been someone who moralises about anything, but certain things, uh, you know, the difference between right and wrong, um, you know, I'll not speak to tabloids or anything like that, and that's just something I'm stuck to, and I, I just, you know, it grinds my gears when I see people who write books or whatever, or do podcasts, and they're, they're reaching for mainstream, they're reaching for awards, that's not why I do stuff, I do stuff because I enjoy it, and, I, you know, this was a, from Albert with Love was a passion project of mine, absolute passion project of mine, that um, I had to sort of polish and um, pay tribute in. 
Anyway, enough of that. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to do a reading from the book. Now, before I start, right, I'm not in a recording studio. I don't have a big microphone in front of me. I don't have teams of editors then going to deal with this and polish it and all that kind of stuff. I believe in authenticity. So if I make mistakes or stumble over words or have to go back or anything like that, that's just the way it is. And um, I can't really do anything about that because if you want sort of uh, vanilla mainstream stuff, then, you know, there's a myriad of silly podcasts that do that right now. You'll not get that here. It's as simple as that. <laughs> and... Uh, you might like me for it, or you might loathe me for it, but um, I'm not going to change. That's the key. That's why I don't have many friends. That's why a lot of people shy away from me. A lot of people think I'm toxic, including Celtic, because I'm only change, and I'm only sugarcoat things, and I'll give opinions, and I'll write stories as they are, and you just need to deal with that. It's never going to win me a... Pulitzer Prize it's never going to have me on cosy chat shows but it's fucking real and it's fucking good okay are you sitting comfortably then we shall begin chapter 2 everybody wants to rule the world the thing about Scottish football then was it was completely different to what it's like now first of all Aberdeen and Dundee United were brilliant. Rangers were alive, but awful, and had been for years. If that doesn't give you a warm glow, you're reading the wrong book. Aberdeen were a tremendous side. Feels like a joke saying that now. Led by Alex Ferguson, they had won the league in 1980, 1984 and 1985. They had also won in 1983 and the European Super Cup that year as well. It's safe to say they started the season as odds-on favourites to sweep up again, although Dundee United were much fancied too. It looked that way in the League Cup anyway, the tournament being played out between August and October, with lots of exciting midweek games springing up and with games played to a finish on the night. Happy or sick were the only two emotions up for grabs. Inevitably, the League Cup would have a sponsor, and this year it was Skull Lager, so the Skull Cup it was. Celtic's progress that year was straightforward up to the last eight. Home wins against Queen of the South 4-1 and Deakin City 7-0 saw us given a away quarter-final tie at Easter Road against a Hibs team who had been ranked rotten thus far this season. For some reason, I ended up in an enclosure again in Edinburgh, this time 100% Celtic, and it was packed. So a big guy with a moustache and black hair sat me on top of the pie stand in the enclosure. I was quite chuffed when one guy said to me, Hey wee man, he's a pie in Bovril, eh? <laughs> As it made me feel like an adult. Of course, after it was said for the 500th time, it made me feel like killing an adult. The teams came out and nothing that had went previous had suggested what was about to unfold. Mo Johnston, 
for the benefit of historical relevance, I will give the Judas cunt his real name in this book. Apologies to all those offended by the word Johnston. Put us ahead with a deflected shot and it looked like we would be business as usual. I distinctly remember a whole enclosure bouncing to Mo Mo Sing For Mo after that goal before the song evolved into Mo Mo Super Mo and then Die, 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 Ya Hun in later years. In typical Celtic fashion though, one minute we were comfortable, the next we were 2-1 down, and for the first time I noticed there were Hibs fans in the ground. The terracing opposite us was under construction and therefore empty, which made for a strange atmosphere that night. Davy Proven brought us level with a typical great goal. Davy Proven was always a big hero of mine, and the goal he scored in the previous season's Scottish Cup final lives long in the memory even if my hero worship stopped the minute he picked up a microphone. As we celebrated, you kind of got the impression that this game had a long way to go, and that was rubber-stamped when Colin Harris came off the bench and scored with his first touch of the ball. It was that kind of night. I mean, who the fuck is Colin Harris? However, Hibs could barely get their going out to us before we equalised again. Paul McStay played a great ball to Proven who crossed for Johnston and he bullied ahead a run off the bar for 3-3 and extra time loomed. Just before full time, Alan Benny Brazil almost crippled Johnston right in front of us and there was a huge surge to the front where we all gave Brazil dogs abuse and a policeman told me to sit down on top of the pie stand and shut up. I'm pretty sure this is what inspired the NWA to write Fuck the Police. It was a surreal atmosphere that night. As I said previously, a lot of Easter Road was under construction, which meant the crowd was restricted to 15,000. I say restricted because it was routine in those days for bigger crowds to appear for one-off cup ties. It's something I really miss. An away cup tie Easter Road was a typical of the kind of game that bristled with excitement. Now in the soulless new build they have, there's less punters at these games and less fun. I remember getting the number 16 bus to the game in 1985 and on it was a guy from the area, Sid Cadona, who previously supported Rangers but had jumped ship and started supporting Hibs. He didn't have a boat on him but had managed to skive on the bus. He sat on the top deck of the bus with a pair of Adidas football boots round his neck. He was a decent player but he didn't have any hope of getting a game. In fact, his intention was to sell the boots and gain the admission money. He actually managed it. I've always wondered if it was Pierce O'Leary who bought them. You'll see. Eight minutes into extra time, Roy Aitken scored easily the best goal of his career and, again, another goal I saw at TV didn't. Running towards the Hibs goal at the Dunbar end, he got to the edge of the box and started going past people in a way that only Maradona or Paddy Court wouldn't be mesmerised by. After going past four defenders, he shifted his body shape and delicately dinked the ball past Alan Ruff, who adopted his usual stuck-in-treacle pose. Alan Ruff went to three World Cups, so I assume he did have some good games in his career. It's just I never saw any of them. We erupted to the chant of Feed the Bear as it filled the leaf night. Surely we were through now. No. 
Judy got a fluky shot in which she took a huge deflection of Danny McGrain and we were at 4-4 in penalties. It looked like the penalties would be a formality for Hibs, shooting towards the cowshed, as we missed our first two. However, Bonner started saving theirs, and we were back in it until the unfortunate Pierce O'Leary hit the ball so far over the bar that Plains had to divert to miss it. That was it. That was that. We were out, and Hibs, who hadn't won a league game all season, were through at the semi-finals. That's just a wee bit of chapter two. Um, as you can see, you need to do chapter one for various um, wee interludes and stuff that were in there. Um, that's a wee taste of um, From Albert With Love. And, um, you know, I hope you enjoyed it. And I think that if you're listening to this, you'll, you'll appreciate the kind of work that has to go into this independently and, you know, all done by yourself and it's, you know, there's no big money people in the background or anything like that. It's all done from love and passion, um, and especially for me in that season. You're never going to make money out of these kind of things. You really earn it. Um, you just simply have to hope that um, it picks up and, you know, who knows, it might go viral, it might not or whatever. But... Again, the, the creating of the book is the best part for me because it allows me to take a walk down memory lane and kind of write about things that are still fresh in the memory even though they're 34, 35 years old. And also write about a time when people that I love and family and all that were around and alive and healthy and happy. That's always a beautiful thing to do, to be able to write about these people um, when they were in that. Um, kind of state rather than passed on or you know perhaps um, not able to go to games or anything like that and that's most important I think for me as a Celtic supporter was that you know people that I grew up with shaped my life and um, the the three main ones were my father uh, James Larkin, my uncle Francie Larkin and my kind of Dutch grandpa um, Archie Wright and it's important for me that, you know, the, the book is dedicated to the three people. And it's important for me to recognise the influence that they had on my life and how they were a massive part in making these kind of stories magical for me and making that part of my life magical. I didn't have a... I'm not going to get a violin out, but I didn't have a great start to life. I had Perthes disease, which meant I was in calipers and... Couldn't walk for a little time, couldn't play football, couldn't do anything that everything else, everyone else was doing. But what I could do was go to the football and uh, they three men ensured that I was given a Celtic education that's always stood me in, in good stead. And, you know, it might well bore people who are kind of newer to the club and, you know, because I have certain things that um, I take very seriously and certain standards, I think, should apply to Celtic, the club, the team, and so on. And they were instilled in me by these men. And um, when I think back to these kind of stories and, and memories, um, whether it's this or with Wim's Tim's, which I'm currently writing just now, you know, it allows my mind to kind of um, drift into a situation where, you know, these people are alive and I can remember... It was just non-stop stories and banter and laughs and, 
you know, it's incredible. And especially now, I think, um, where Celtic are, it doesn't really feel like that anymore. Maybe it's just because I'm getting old and all that kind of thing. I don't know. And I suppose if you're listening to this, you're probably in my generation, you're probably of my ilk, and you're probably one of the people who do like to romanticise this kind of stuff, you know, which is great. Um, so the link will be in the bio to buy this book if you want to buy it. Um, if you don't, you know, there's nothing I can do about that really. But I hope you enjoyed the reading. Um, if you buy it, I hope you enjoy the book. And, you know, if you're my ilk, I hope you enjoy your life. Thanks. Fresh and green, I'll 